Hello and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett, a leadership speaker and retired Air Force Colonel. This podcast was started in an effort to help the stories of our nation's greatest heroes reach a wider audience. Stories of commitment, sacrifice, integrity, citizenship, patriotism, and courage. It's such an honor each month to host a wide range of guests each of whom have helped advance the National Medal of Honor Museum's mission to inspire. It's always particularly special when I get an opportunity to have a conversation with one of our nation's 65 living Medal of Honor recipients. Conversations our listeners seem to particularly appreciate and enjoy as well. So on that note, we'd like to introduce you to Courage Conversations, a series of episodes that will feature candid conversations with Medal of Honor recipients, each of whom have gone above and beyond in their service to others, both on the battlefield and right here at home in America. Our guest this month has done just that. Colonel Jack Jacobs deployed to Vietnam twice, displaying heroism that earned him our nation's highest combat decoration, the Medal of Honor. At home, Mr. Jacobs is a successful business founder, distinguished professor, serves on a number of charitable boards of directors, and is even an award-winning producer. We're also humbled to count him as a member of the museum's board of directors. So with that, it is my pleasure to welcome Mr. Jack Jacobs to the Mission Inspire podcast. Mr. Jacobs, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Mission Inspire podcast. And I know you're a very, very busy man, and um, you have a tremendous story of service, sacrifice and devotion to your fellow man but as all good stories we're going to start at the beginning and uh, have you tell us what made you decide to join the army even in the first place well you're looking at somebody who believes in universal service i think if you're lucky enough to live in a free country you owe it something in the form of service uh, i grew up to the extent that i grew up at all after the <laughs> second world war my father had served in the second world war in new guinea and the philippines in the army and had been drafted out of the University of Minnesota. Uh, hated getting dragged out of college. Uh, hated the army. Hated getting shot at. Nobody likes getting shot at. And yet when he got to be my age, he and all of his friends who had survived uh, talked about nothing but how proud they were at having saved the world. And they had saved the world. Mm -hmm. And I decided that it was my responsibility uh, to do my bit. And so when I was graduated from college, I came into the army with the expectation of spending doing my three years and then getting out and going to law school or finding some other way to make a living. But I stayed and I stayed because I really loved the people. And today when people ask me, what do I miss most about the army? Uh, it's the people. I love being around people who have served. I love being around people who are serving. Um, it gives me a great deal of, uh, of enthusiasm for the future when I see the young people who are out there defending us now. And we have to make no mistake about this. We have decided to outsource the defense of the Republic to a very small number of young men and women who are willing to do it. Right. I think that's a mistake because like I said, I believe that everybody owes something in the form of service, but we are extremely lucky to have these young kids. And of course, at my age, everybody's a young kid. <laughs> to have these young kids out there right now defending us all around the world. 
Absolutely. Well, I love that. I love that you are um you're carrying on your father's legacy, and it's funny how. Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate the fact that you said that to the extent that you grew up, right? So I always say that everybody grows old, not everybody grows up. So I think that age is a number, and I think it's uh it's how we do uh do all those years inside there. But I love that um that that propensity to serve and that desire to serve and that call to serve. And again, I think there's so many people who start out with just, I'm just going to do my commitment and end up having a phenomenal career. That's much longer than that, uh, that initial investment of uh, what you're supposed to give them back. We will fast forward to the day you earned your medal of honor. So I believe it was 1968 in the Kien Phong province in Vietnam. Is that correct? That's right. Could you tell us a little bit about that day? Well, we had, uh, this is uh, during the Tet Offensive, or at the tail end of the Tet Offensive in 1968. And we'd been fighting a Viet Cong unit uh, continuously for about two months. Uh, and then they broke contact. And anybody who's been in the infantry knows that if you're, if you've got the enemy uh, in your sights, you don't want them to break contact. Right. You want to keep fighting, but he, but he left. Uh, and the higher headquarters for which we were working came to the conclusion that they, they had intelligence that pinpointed the center of mass of this uh, enemy unit and mounted an operation uh, for us to go after them. My battalion, which was the 2nd Battalion, 16th Regiment of the 9th Vietnamese Infantry Division, landed on the north shore of the Basak River, which is the northern, um, the northern arm of the Mekong river complex and moved directly north towards this spot. It was at the confluence of a couple of canals. You got to picture the area. It's dead flat from the Seven Mountains area near the Cambodian border all the way to the South China Sea. I mean, there's not a foot of elevation. Hmm. In the wet season, it's water up to your neck. And in the dry season, it's dry as a bone. And you have fields of fire for 500 meters, 800 meters, mm -hmm. 1,000 meters in some cases. And as we moved forward, um, I, I noticed that the scouts were not uh, screening to the left flank and to the front. And I called back and said, you know, the scouts aren't here. Oh, no, the tank commander says that they are. Well, they weren't. And to this day, 54 years later, I can't tell you where they were. I, I, but I can tell you they weren't in front of us. <laughs> well, I, I and my NCO... Uh, were with the two lead companies, and we walked into a giant L-shaped ambush that had been prepared over a period of three days, wow. uh, and we lost a lot of people killed and wounded in the first 10 seconds of the battle. Years later, uh, I went back to Vietnam. The governor of Vietnam found the enemy commander, who had been a VC district chief at the time, oh. and we had a conversation about the battle, and I said, how did you know we were coming? I mean, you clearly knew we were coming. He said, yeah, we had a couple of spies in the province chief's headquarters. And so we knew exactly, we knew your whole operations plan, knew when wow. we were coming and where you were coming and so on. Wow. And he said, I managed to get about 250 uh, people together to form this ambush and dig it in, which is why uh, you ran into this, ran into this ambush. That uh, is crazy. Over the next, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours, three hours. I can't remember how long it was. We, we did manage to uh, manage to uh, close with and kill or capture the enemy and save the good guys. Uh, it, but it was an extremely fierce battle. And we lost a lot of good soldiers. 
Now, was one of the ones you you lost uh, your commander, and then you because you took over command, right, of the unit after, during the ambush? Well, one of the company commanders I was with was very badly wounded. He, I think he subsequently died. Um, uh, but you know, taking over in a situation like that entails principally telling people either to move forward or withdraw to a safe area, or in some cases, both. Don't forget, there were two companies, two whole companies with us, and then two more companies back with the battalion commander and the senior advisor and one other NCO uh, a little bit to the rear. So it was a, a chaotic situation at best. And uh, yeah, you got to, you know, when it's, look, when, when the situation is extremely difficult, you got to tell people what to do and how to act. And there are plenty of stories, both from Medal of Honor recipients and people who are not recognized for anything, who spent time in combat, and you'll They'll tell you stories that exactly the same. It, it didn't matter who was in charge. Somebody had to take charge. Right. Issue orders and instructions in order to, in order to defeat the enemy and save the good guys. Yeah, that's what well, I'm impressed too that you that you had you got to go back and basically meet the enemy, right? So talk to the commander who was responsible for the ambush, that, that struck you guys and took so many of your uh, teammates. That that's fascinating. That that in and of itself is fascinating to me. Um, but that wasn't the second exact time that you went back. Cause, so a lot of people don't know this, but you took a second deployment to Vietnam. And so I'm assuming that's before you met the, uh, the ambush commander, uh, still during the, during the war. Um, and the army had even ordered you to stay out of combat, right? And then you asked the army to send you back to Vietnam. Is that, is that accurate so far? Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so what, what, what makes somebody who's been through that kind of horrific ambush in that kind of uh, first deployment, what makes somebody ask the army to send them back for another one? Well, I mean, there are a couple of explanations, none of which are satisfactory on their own. Uh, <laughs> temporary insanity is probably, <laughs> I lost my marbles briefly. I had, I, uh, and you know, you gotta be in it. Uh, yep. And a lot of people, I mean, you know yourself, you spend a lot of time in uniform. You yep. don't wanna, not be there. You got to be there. The army had sent me to after the advanced course. Sent me to graduate school. Where I studied political science, and I was subsequently going to go to West Point teach international relations and comparative politics. So I finished graduate school in '72. I called up my assignment officer and said, "Okay, I'm ready to go to West Point and teach." He said, "Well, West Point doesn't want you until '73." <laughs> so you, you're going to go on a short tour, you know, the company tour for one mm -hmm. year. And uh, we're sending you to Korea. I said, I want to go to Korea. It's too cold. And, you know, in retrospect, it's no colder than New Jersey, you know. <laughs> but in any case, this is my excuse. It's too, I don't want to go back. I want to go to Vietnam. You can't go back to Vietnam. You're a Medal of Honor recipient. We don't send Medal of Honor recipients to um, back into combat. I said, well, you know, in Vietnam, Keith Ware uh, went. He got the Medal of Honor in the Second World War. And my assignment officer said, by the way, he was the commanding general of the 1st Infantry Division in Vietnam. He said, yeah, and he got killed. So it's, it's one of the reasons we don't do that. <laughs> I said, no, I really want to go. And in the back of my mind is the following. Uh, I was making $300 a month. I had a wife and two children. <laughs> and uh, you got a, a dollar a day family separation allowance. That's an extra 30 bucks mm -hmm. if you're in deployed and $65 a month 
combat pay, that's almost 25 extra bucks a week. I'm taking it. <laughs> so I argued strenuously, and finally they, the assignment officer said, I'm tired of arguing with you. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to issue orders for you to go back to Vietnam, but no combat for you. We're issuing orders for you to be at the Military Assistance Command Vietnam headquarters in Saigon. You're going to have a desk job. And, okay, there you go. So I got orders to go to Vietnam. The instant I got to Camp Alpha, I picked up the phone and I called the Airborne Advisory Team and got Sergeant First Class Rick Biondo from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, somebody similar, who himself, I think, had just come out of the hospital after the uh, North Vietnamese uh, Easter Offensive hmm. after getting wounded in Anlock. And I said, I want to come to the team. He said, well, there's nobody here except me and a couple of other people. And they're all up north trying to take back Quang Tri province from North Vietnamese to counterattack and take back Quang Tri province. I want to come to the airborne advisory team and not only make that extra $95 a month, but an extra another $110 on top of that. <laughs> so <laughs> he said, well, and you can't get away with this anymore because, you know, the, the technology being what it is, everybody knows where you are. Yeah picture of your retina and so on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, listen, I've got a friend in orders section. This guy was this Sergeant First Class E7. So I've got a friend in orders section. I'll just go, give me a name, rank, and service number. I'll go down there and have him change your orders. And I'll be down to Camp Alpha to pick you up in two hours. And sure enough, two hours later, he showed up with my orders changed to the Airborne Advisory Team. Both of us got on a C-123 and went up north. And I joined the... Uh, <laughs> First Vietnamese Airborne Battalion, as it was counterattacking to take back Quang Tri Province. The Army, of course, uh, didn't know this and discovered it much later. Right. And were not amused. I bet. <laughs> okay, so FOMO. So you had fear of missing out, so you wanted to go back. You had temporary insanity, which maybe, you know, maybe it's not so temporary. And the, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit of getting more money for your family. Those are the reasons you went back to Vietnam. Is that, is that correct? <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I'm an infantry soldier. And if yeah, you're yeah. In behind a desk, it's no good. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. So, okay, then where were you when you learned about the Medal of Honor then from your first deployment? Ah, this was 1969, and I was, after I got out of the hospital, they sent me to Fort Benning, mm -hmm. Georgia, and I commanded an OCS company, and I'm in my office, and um, my company clerk, Crescencio Alvarez, who I think had like two or three PhDs, okay. his family were refugees from, from Cuba, and he yelled in and said, uh, he said, there's some colonel on the phone wants to talk to you They're calling from washington and you have to realize when this was a long time ago and colonels don't call captains that's for right, sure right right certainly not from washington <laughs> i figured it was a joke it was a joke call but it couldn't be a joke call because back in those days phone calls cost actual money oh that's right that's right no it's not, it's not a not a gag call anyway i pick up the phone and i'll adumbrate the whole thing he said and i'm giving you I'm actually giving you the entire conversation, the way it took place. Okay. I may miss one or two words, but it is essentially these words and this length. Is I'm Colonel Schmedlap or whoever it was. I'm Chief of Army Awards Branch. Uh, congratulations, you're gonna receive the Medal of Honor. 
You're not allowed to tell anybody except your immediate family. And this afternoon, one of my people is going to call you up and make arrangements for you and your family to come to Washington for you to receive the award at the White House. Congratulations again out here. And that was the end of the conversation. Wow. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of pomp and circumstance in that call, huh? <laughs> well, right. So uh, sure enough, not that, that afternoon, some major called up. And I can't remember how much longer it was. It was a week or two later. It was pretty soon at, thereafter. Went to went to Washington and got decorated in a ceremony that included three other soldiers, all from different actions. And believe it or not, all four of us are still alive. So Fantastic. Been, yeah, it's really quite astonishing. We're all old and decrepit, but. Yeah, <laughs> but but still alive. So what was that day like? What was it like going to the White House after that, like all that ceremonious phone call that you got? But what was that event like? Well, the 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 most astonishing thing about it was not being at the White House or meeting the president and so on. And I've got plenty of anecdotes about Nixon. <laughs> and we were in the in the Oval Office, and he said, "How would you guys like to go meet the other Medal of Honor recipients?" They had scheduled the ceremony to coincide with the biennial get-together of oh. Medal of Honor recipients, which was taking place in Houston and the following day. And he said, uh, well, I said, sure, we'd love to. He said, <laughs> okay, take my plane, take my plane. And the next morning they took us down to Andrews, stuck us in Air Force One, one of the uh -huh. Air Force Ones, which plane, by the way, today is hanging in Simi Valley, California, in the Reagan Library because it was the last, oh, last Air, Fo Air Force One Reagan used. It's a 707 with a, you know, the diameter of the fuselage is just barely enough to get two people down and so on. In any case, the most astonishing thing about the day, in my view, was when we went out onto the into the Rose Garden where the ceremony was taking place. They had built a platform. And it was a bright sunny day in October, 1969, beautiful day. And what was, what was most shocking to me is the sea of people there. They had opened up the White House gates and let anybody wanted to come watch ceremony, come watch ceremony. I mean, you know, government workers, passersby, mm -hmm. whoever, anybody. And, uh, and, and that's what shocked me the most, the standing up, up there on the platform and looking at, you could even see the, the fence around the White House. You can't, uh, I don't think you can drive down Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah, now. you can't get that close. No, for, yeah, for sure. Come on, go on in and watch the ceremony. And that, that's, that, that picture is, is, uh, is branded into my brain. That's all I can think about it was, was that sea of people. And yeah. I, I don't remember the ceremony, but I do, Interesting. I do remember the sea of people, maybe because I was so gobsmacked by all these people. Yeah. That's amazing, though. That, that I, I mean, just to, to yeah, to be there, and again, such a different time when we can't even get close to the White House, and here's all these people that get to witness that ceremony. And so, uh, you may not remember it, but there's a there's a sea of people that gobsmacked you, but they remember it. So I think that's that's really cool. So, well, so in reading your bio, I realize, and here comes the pun: you are a jack of all trades. Um, and so, since retiring from the army in 1987, you've had a litany of civilian jobs uh, so you are i can't hold a job maybe that's 
maybe maybe that maybe that's it but there's something to be said for that too though right so uh uh so you've been a distinguished professor as much as they can have those at west point um you've published two books you've founded a debt securitization firm you've been the principal for a real estate development firm you are the director of veterans advancement for the new york film academy and the director emeritus of the world war ii museum uh and again because you're not busy enough you still find time to be an on-air military analyst for nbc news I saw that you were also installed into the New Jersey Hall of Fame, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, true. <laughs> so in addition to thinking that you can't hold that many jobs, what drives you to be so involved with all these different important initiatives and projects? Well, you know, to be my age, you realize that you have, um, you got a lot more runway behind you than you do ahead of you. And if you're going to do anything, you better do it now. <laughs> I tell kids all the time not to procrastinate. I think it's a peculiarly adolescent thing to do is to wait until tomorrow because your view is when you're young, and mine was too, you know, uh, that you have an unending stream of days ahead of you. Right. And so if you wait another day or two or week or month, doesn't matter. You've got plenty of time um, until you don't. Mm-hmm. And I think those people who manage to accomplish things that, that are that are satisfying uh, do so because they realize relatively early on that you don't have an unending stream of days ahead of you, that if you're going to do something, you do it and you better do it now. So I try to get involved in as many things as I possibly can. Um, and I'm involved in a number of charities and so on, because if I'm not going to do it, who's going to do it? Right. And I don't have a lot of time to, to do it. But I, I, I enjoy all the things I do get involved in. And I apologize for ending that independent <laughs> phrase with a preposition. This is oh. Romano, my third grade. <laughs> she... I went to public school in New York City, and she had an 18-inch maple ruler with a metal edge. And if I <laughs> said what I just said, I'd get a whack right across the knuckles for ending yeah, pre- a preposition. Yeah, a preposition is a rough thing to end a sentence with. Um, so, of <laughs> course, <laughs> of course, you know, this is the Mission Inspire podcast. And so you are also on the National Medal of Honor Museum Board of Directors. So how did you get, I mean, it seems like a natural thing, but tell us how you got involved with that project. I can't remember who it was who told me, you need to be on this board. And that was the end of it. I, Whoever it was, was was probably lots taller and stronger and younger than I. And rather than get a punch in the nose, it's whatever you say, boss, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And of course, it's one of the most exciting things in which to be involved uh, I could possibly think of. I, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that motivates me about it and the other Medal of Honor recipients too. When I was decorated, there were in excess of 350 or 60 recipients still alive. Uh, there was a guy named Bill Seach who had conducted a bayonet charge on the Citadel at Beijing in 1900 during the Boxer Rebellion. He was still alive. Uh, We had recipients from the interwar years. There was a number of recipients from the First World War whom I thought were dreadfully old and was recently chagrined to realize that they were decades younger at the time I met them than I am now. Right, right. Horrifying. But they're all gone now. And most of us recipients now and recently realize that we're a wasting asset. Uh, Eventually, there might be none of us left. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And if we're going to have any impact on the future, it's it's not uh, you don't do so. I, I think it was Goethe probably who said it's not a result of the things that you leave behind. Uh, your impact on the on the future uh, is the result of your your acting and enjoying, but getting other people to act and to enjoy. And the National Medal of Honor Museum is not just a repository for stuff. There's, there's plenty right. of stuff. I mean, if you want stuff, that's the place. You want to look at, that's the place to go. But more of an educational exercise. There's nothing you, there's no better way to reach into the future than through education. Matter of fact, I don't think you can reach into the future without right. education. And we're all convinced that this is the vehicle to educate uh, all Americans, not just about valor and combat. I mean, but I mean, that's, it's actually an ancillary subject, but instruct them about the kinds of values that drive people to do the things that they do, not just in right. combat, but in everyday life. Right. I, I'm reminded and one of the things that drives me about this, of Benjamin Franklin's observation just before the revolution when he wrote, we either hang together or we will surely hang separately. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that motivates me and other recipients about the National Medal of Honor Museum is that it can serve the purpose of instilling that notion uh, in future generations of America who will come and see not only stories about acts of valor, but the uh, the attitudes and the values that drive people to take care of each other. That's what right. this is about. Yeah, no, I love that. It, well, and as a storyteller, I also, you know, you know, like you said, we can all go see this stuff, but it's it's rarely about the stuff. It's about the stories behind the stuff and the stories behind um, all these actions. And, and like you said, I mean, these values and things that that people just rise up, whatever the situation is. So so having met and, and be able to hang out, hang out and learn all the stories of other recipients. Is there another recipient whose whose story particularly inspires you? Well, I mean, they're all fantastic, mm-hmm. not fantastic. And they, I mean, they're all. They're all not, they're not fantastic in the, in the fictional sense. They're all just astonishing stories. Um, But one does stick, stick out in my mind now that I think about it. There, there's a guy not alive anymore named Tibor Rubin, Ted Rubin, went by Ted Rubin. He was um, a refugee uh, from Nazi Hungary was uh, freed from Mauthausen concentration camp by Patton's third army. I think the 11th armored cavalry regiment actually. And Ted at the Ted lost, his whole family was exterminated. Uh-huh. And Ted uh, was 15 at the time. And he's committed himself to the following. He said, if I survive, and it was not a guarantee either, you know, the 11th ACR came, liberated the, camp and then moved on. I mean, there are a lot of camps to liberate, a lot of Nazis to chase and so on. And everybody had been starving to death. So it was not a guarantee that he was going to survive. He said, if I survive all this, I'm going to come to the United States and become a G.I. Joe (laughs) and uh, pay the United States back for saving my life. And in 1948, I think he came to the United States, tried desperately to get into the army, but spoke only Hungarian and Yiddish and couldn't pass the test or anything like that. Cheated to get 
to pass the Armed Forces Qualifying Test. Wow. To come into the United States Army and some year, a few years later found himself in Korea fighting, fighting the war. Wow. He was recommended for the Medal of Honor four separate times. Wow. And for different actions, by the way. And his company commander said, no Blinken Jew is going to get any award in my company mm-hmm. and kept sending him on impossible missions, um, made him uh, a detachment left in contact by himself a couple of times. But he was a game guy. Uh, he eventually was wounded and captured by the Chinese and wound up in the Chinese POW camp. Um, and, you know, was a pretty savvy guy, escaped, but didn't escape to go run away. He escaped night after night to go into the uh, the soldier Chinese soldiers' barracks to steal food and medicine and bring them back into the camp. Wow. Take care of his fellow fellow internees. Um, managed to survive the war. He received the Medal of Honor 55 years after the fact. Jeez. And it's the other than my own ceremony, it's the only one I went to. And I met some of the guys who resurrected, were in his unit and in the POW camp, who resurrected the recommendation for the Medal of Honor. Uh, They were all older, obviously, in late 80s, some of them. One of them was in a wheelchair. We were in in the East Room where the ceremony took place. And this guy who had been, been in Ted's unit was crying his eyes out, pointed to Ted across the room, and said, that man saved my life. Wow. Um, I know Ted's gone now and nobody wants to be dead, but if I could be anybody, I'd be Ted Rubin. Wow, that's amazing. See, this is what I love about the museum is that is that this it may be a repository for the stuff but it's a repository for those kind of stories and legacies i love i love that and so i to to be able to share those all of those things and all of those details and again it's about all the people that that helped resurrect that that recommendation um and so i'm glad that we have that especially something that's going to bring our country together because it's a little bit divisive now you know so i'm i'm really really grateful that the medal of honor museum is going to do that and we've also got not only the museum in arlington texas but we've got this national monument um in dc that we can all kind of huddle around and um pass on the values of courage and being a terrific spot you know it's going to be right right near the vietnam memorial and the Mm -hmm. uh and the Lincoln Memorial is going to be spectacular. Yeah, it's perfect. I'm a, I'm also a DC tour guide, so I, I'm I'm excited for this as well. So I think it's phenomenal. But again, we talk about courage and sacrifice and patriotism and citizenship and integrity and commitment. And so to have these uh, physical manifestations of that, so we can tell these stories, so we can have that conversation starter and, and catalyze those conversations. I'm so excited for that. So when the museum does open its doors in 2024. What are you most excited for and what do you hope the visitors will take away from the museum? Uh, well, it'll be great. It, it, I'd love to be around in 2024. So let's see. Let me do the math. <laughs> so, um, it, it'll be great to see this um, this vision come to fruition mm-hmm. and actually physically have this place. But more important than that, I think, is going to be the flow of Americans who are going to come through there and not just get these stories, but inoculate themselves with the notions that made these stories possible in the first place, all those values you just mentioned, and leave 
committing themselves to doing something themselves for their fellow Americans. I love that. I love that. This is awesome. You are so sharp. And I just, I, and I was, I was going to give you grief at the beginning. We talked about the library that it seems like you're sitting in you said you had a bajillion books in there. I was going to tell you a million times that you shouldn't exaggerate, but I think you actually might have all that, all those books in there. And um, you were just so sharp and I really, really appreciate it. So thank you for making the time to talk to us today and to let me spend time with you. Cause it's truly my honor. And uh, I'm, I'm very, I know everybody's jealous that I had the time to speak with you. And so um, I, I really, really appreciate your time and your stories and your dedication to to not just telling the stories of that that you went through but everybody's stories and then put in being on the board of directors for the museum i think that's that's huge and so uh we will close today and let people know that if they want to learn more about the national medal of honor museum they can just go type in mohmuseum.org now that we have the technology and you can get the latest updates and find out how you can help its mission to inspire america and that'll be it for us today we'll be uh we'll see you next time on the mission inspire podcast so mr jacobs thank you again so much for your time and it was a pleasure to spend time with you and meet you thanks for making me a part of all this